Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, I'm very excited to uh, introduce Professor Robert Langer, who is an acclaimed chemical engineer, professor, and investor in biomedical technology. He is one of the 10 institute professors at MIT, which is the highest honor that can be awarded to a faculty member. He has written more than 1,500 articles with 1,400 patents issued and pending worldwide and have been licensed uh, to over 400 companies. He is the most cited engineer in history with an H index of 283 and over 300,000 citations around uh, according to Google Scholar. So his inventions are estimated to have affected over 2 billion lives and his most recent public work involves the coronavirus vaccine created by Moderna, which is the biotech company he co-founded. So as you can see, uh, Professor Langer is uh, uh, probably the biggest deal that we've had so far uh, on Policy Punchline. So Professor Langer, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, and as our audience may know, I am more of a econ generalist guy. I don't know anything about science. So I've uh, brought on two of my most brilliant friends, Arshin Mani and uh, Michael Senka. Both of them are also aspiring intellectuals who uh, are pursuing uh, PhDs in, in computer science. They've applied to MIT, but they haven't heard back. So uh, we don't know what's going to happen on that front. <laughs> but Arjun, Michael, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Professor Langer, per perhaps we can uh, start with a very broad question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about your early journey? How did you become interested in science and engineering and chemical engineering in particular? Uh, what drove you to pursue a PhD in the field uh, when you were an undergrad at our age? Yeah, well, well, I, I have to admit, I didn't really think it through that carefully. You know, when I was in, I, but when I was a little boy, they had these what are called Gilbert chemistry sets and Gilbert microscope sets, and they were fun to play with. And so that got me somewhat excited about science and, and even chemistry. But, you know, when I was in high school, I was good in math and science. So my uh, parents or my father and my guidance counselor told me I should become an engineer, even though I didn't really know what that was. So, but that's what I did. I applied to, to engineering schools and I went to Cornell. And my first year, the only course I really liked and did well in was chemistry. So that made me decide to be a chemical engineer. Like I said, it wasn't that, that deep a thought. In terms of my next steps, then I, uh, you know, when I finished, when I was finishing, I mean, different uh, classmates of mine did different things. But the only jobs I really got were like running a chemical plant. And I thought I would be terrible at that. It probably would blow up the place. So, you know, being a graduate student struck me as, uh, you know, a way to, you know, really get maybe more in-depth understanding of some additional options that I, I, I might do. So I ended up doing what your colleagues are talking about is going to graduate school. Makes sense. Um, and so then, you know, after your graduate studies, you, you talked about how um, you know, I think that the petrochemical industry was recruiting heavily and, and, you know, so you were offered many traditional chemical engineering jobs after your PhD and, and instead of taking those offers, I believe you uh, decided to find a position in medical research working with Judah Folkman. So um, I think we're excited to get into sort of the research that you did there, but first, what motivated you to make that decision and to choose medical research over kind of the more traditional offers that you had? Yeah, so, so what happened when I was a graduate student, a couple things. One is 
you're right. Like a lot of my friends, everybody was going into oil companies. There was like this gas shortage then. They had a lot of openings and I got like 20 offers, but I wasn't excited about it. I mean, you know, you go there and then you think about what you'll be doing for the rest of your life. And, you know, they'd be talking to me, boy, if you could just increase the yield of this one chemical by 0.1%, that would be great, you know, be worth tons of money. But, you know, I, as I started thinking about that, I just didn't want to do that. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly, but I, I knew it wasn't that. I wanted to be able to have some impact I felt on, on the world, whatever that might be. And when I was a graduate student, when I was doing my thesis, one of the things I, I spent a lot of time doing was helping some other people start this uh, high school for disadvantaged or working class high school students. And I, I really loved that. I got very involved in creating new chemistry curricula and, and new math curricula. So actually I started thinking that I might wanna do something like that, you know, I, I, but maybe in a broader way. So what happened is I, I remember seeing an ad one day for City College of New York to create new chemistry curricula. And I thought that would be really good. And I wrote them, but they didn't write me back. But I, I liked the idea. I started applying to all these other schools to do the same thing. You know, a lot of them weren't even very good, but you know, I wasn't in the right box, uh, like the chemistry education box, uh, like because you know, there's a major you can do in that, and that's not what I did. I was a chemical engineer, so I, I none of them really got back to me. So that was kind of discouraging, but it did make me think that what I wanted to do was use my chemical engineering education to help people. So that made me think about medicine, and I started applying to a lot of medical schools and uh, and hospitals, and they didn't get back to me either, but I, um, I, 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 but I, I like that idea. And then one day, one of the people in the, my, the laboratory, I was in Barry Bunau, he, he suggested to me that there was this surgeon named Judah Folkman and that he sometimes hired sort of unusual people. So I, I wrote him and he was nice enough to get back to me. And that's how I ended up there. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so I think it, it, it'd be lovely to sort of jump into into the research that you were doing with, with Judah Folkman. And so um, our understanding of it um, is that you were trying to come up with some inhibitor that can that can stop blood vessels from growing um, in order to, or rather even come up with a factor that can control blood vessel growth um, with applications to reducing the growth of tumors. Um, and so, um, you know, so, so, so the goal was to try to find inhibitors that, that stop the, the tumors from essentially um, that vascularizing and growing bigger. Um, and so how did this idea first come to light? And I think our understanding was that while most people at the time didn't actually think it was possible. So I'd love to hear more also about why you decided to stick to the idea and why you thought it was possible. Sure. Well, first, I mean, that idea of, of angiogenesis, you know, that and blood vessel growth being important to tumors and, and other diseases, that, that was Dr. Folkman's idea. I thought it was a very appealing idea, partly because I didn't know much about biology. It was, it was widely criticized at the time. Uh, and I didn't know that either. But I felt like when I, I mean, basically the idea for cancer is, is that normally blood vessels, well, first, if you take a tumor and it becomes, grows abnormally, it might grow as a three-dimensional mass. But if it didn't get blood vessels, it could never really get larger than, uh, a millimeter cube because of you can't get nutrients to the center and you can't get rid of waste. But his theory was that 
the tumor made some substance, which he called tumor angiogenesis factor, and it diffused to the surrounding blood vessels, which were normally quiescent, but then in the presence of this, these molecules, that they, all of a sudden the blood vessels would start growing and growing and they'd grow right to the tumor and they'd feed it. So they'd solve the nutrition problem for the tumor. And that enabled it to get bigger, bigger and bigger. And also it, it could spread through those blood vessels later. That's metastasis, which often kills people. And, and so that was his idea. Uh, he hired me to, I guess, prove his idea. And in so doing, isolate the first angiogenesis inhibitor. And like I say, I thought this was, to me, being a chemical engineer certainly made a lot of sense. Now, maybe if I'd known more biology, I, I would have thought like other people that maybe it didn't, but, uh, and, and like I say, he was widely criticized, I mean, at that time and actually for many years, but it turned out he was right. And uh, so in, in terms of me trying to take that idea and make it happen, there were a couple of things that I did. One was I had to find something that could um, stop blood vessels from growing. And there we looked at cartilage, which doesn't have blood vessels. And I'd start getting tons of cartilage from slaughterhouses and scraping the meat off of them and extracting different things. But then the other real key issue was creating a bioassay uh, you know, for it. That, that, that was really, the, really wasn't a good way to study um, whether you were stopping blood vessels because there's almost always background blood vessels and that takes a while for them to grow. So here we created what we call a, a rabbit eye assay and other people use mouse eyes or rat eyes, but basically it was always along the same idea that if you put certain tumors in the eye, they would cause over a, a several month period, blood vessels to grow from the edge of the cornea to the tumor. So you could actually quantitate that with a ophthalmic microscope. But the key to creating the assay was that the molecules we were isolating were pretty large molecules. And nonetheless, if you put them in the eye right away or used eye drops, they diffuse away right away. So what was critical was creating something that was biocompatible that you could put in the eye and that could deliver these large molecules. So that was the other big thing. So I worked on sort of two projects that were you know, somehow connected. One was isolating substances that could stop blood vessels from growing and two, creating this bioassay, which created, which involved creating the first drug delivery systems for macromolecules. So, can we just quickly define? So, uh, uh, can we just quickly define the word bioassay, and so that we understand like what these two problems were and how each one was working together? Sure. So, bioassay is a way to study some factor, and in this case, the bioassay was a way to study blood vessel growth. So, what we wanted to do was have a bioassay that would enable us to look at um, how fast the blood vessels were growing and, and, and would, if we isolated something that could stop blood vessels, would we really be able to see it? And would we be able to quantitate it and maybe someday even purify it? Um, so that's the bioassay. And, and then, like I say, we were using, studying, our, our initial thought was cartilage uh, as a source of, of this inhibitor. Uh, so Professor Langer, as you explained, you really struggled a lot for the project on blood vessel growth because you first had to develop this bioassay to study blood vessel growth. And, and there wasn't 
one available. And it took you months to develop the polymer systems and bioassay, and you had to separate many different molecules and almost all of them didn't work out until you finally successfully isolated the substances that could control the blood vessel growth. And uh, you've talked about this story many times, but I, I would love to, I guess, go back to that time and, and picture uh, myself or, or let our audience picture themselves in your shoes back then because so many people doubted you and it was a long struggle. Why did you stuck with the idea? I mean, I guess that the, the bigger question here is what is the process of drug discovery both for you today and when you were much younger? Because as a young scientist, a lot of times uh, the interesting part of your early career is that you didn't know too much about biology, uh, uh, about chemistry. So you said a lot of times you felt like you were in the dark. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, for, first, I thought this was just a really important problem. I mean, I really felt if we, and it turned out that was right, not that I realized it fully at the time, but I just felt like, boy, if, 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 if I could do this, if we could do this, stop blood vessels from growing, I mean, that would be just this huge deal because it could open up new possibilities for cancer therapies and, and maybe other therapies too. Um, and, you know, so I, I, uh, I just kept working on it for several years. I mean, I pretty stubborn, and I uh, and Dr. Folkman was a great role model. He he was a you know just a very encouraging person. Um, so and it meant something to me to do it for him, to do it for the lab. So that so there were really two parts to it. One was doing it, and even though it took several years to do it, that was one part. But I think the second part was even after I did it, it was really people were very skeptical, both on the angiogenesis part and on the drug delivery part. The drug delivery part even more because everybody, all the you know, much better or more well-known scientists than I, chemists and engineers, said that what I was doing was impossible. Like we published, like I say, in this journal Nature in 1976. Actually, that's probably, I didn't mention that. So we did publish in 1976 the assay for the angiogenesis inhibitor and the isolation of these first inhibitors in the journal Science in 1976. Uh, we published in 1976 also the idea that, that about these materials that could deliver macromolecules and that we published in Nature. But both of those, there was a lot of skepticism for many, many years um, uh, that, that like for example, the idea that materials could deliver large molecules, people didn't think made any sense. Just like they'd say, like, how could we, any of us walk through a wall? We're just, you know, we're just too big to get through the wall. And also we use certain kinds of solvents like organic solvents. And people said, well, that didn't make any sense either because the mo large molecules that I was putting into these uh, materials were like uh, peptides, proteins and nucleic acids. And, and this may come up later because nucleic acids are DNA and RNA. And it was the first time that anybody had ever put them in tiny particles and then delivered them. Of course, and that's the basis of a lot of these vaccines that, that you mentioned in the beginning. But still people were super skeptical of, of me doing that in, uh, and, 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 and that in the paper, you know, going back you know, close to almost 50 years. So as you mentioned, once the inhibitor of blood vessel growth was discovered, uh, there is the challenge of delivering it since it is naturally broken down by the body. Can you explain in more detail the drug delivery system you invented to deliver the inhibitor to the tumor in a controlled release fashion? Yeah, so the specific thing we did is I looked at a lot of different materials. And I ended up using certain polymers, uh, plastics, and uh, you know most of the designs I used didn't 
work. Um, and most of the materials didn't work either, but I, I, I did, so I kept experimenting. It was more like Edisonian-like, you know, just trying different materials, trying different designs, uh, you know, concentrations of the drug, coating the, the materials with other materials and so forth. Uh, you know, most everything didn't work. Uh, either the drug didn't come out or it came out right away. But, uh, but you know, eventually I did find uh, certain materials. In this case, it was a, what's called an ethylene vinyl acetate copolymer that worked pretty well. And, and that's, that's how I got started. Later on, I'd find others too. And other people, lots of people over the years have, you know, taken this a lot further than the, you know, where I was when I started it. So, yeah. And so on that point, your lab continues to work on drug delivery. So I'm curious, how have the drug delivery systems developed in your lab evolved since the first version? Have the basic principles stayed the same? Have more recent designs become more complex? For example, and recently your lab released a star-shaped drug for, for release in the stomach. So we'd love to hear about how the systems have evolved since the first iteration. Yeah, well, it's, it's evolved a lot, not just because of me, but I mean, now there's giant industries doing this stuff. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I mean, one way to think about it is in 1974, when I started, I don't think there were any of these advanced drug delivery systems. Now, these delivery systems are, are used almost by everybody in one way or another. I mean, you know, there's uh, microspheres that you inject to treat uh, cancer, uh, to, tr uh, to treat mental health diseases, like, you know, you hear about opioid addiction. I mean, those are some of the major ways to treat that. Um, I mean, the COVID vaccine, every COVID vaccine based on messenger RNA or even a protein uses uh, nanoparticles. If you have heart disease, you get what's called drug eluting stents. So, I mean, almost everybody in the world and the, uh, you know, gets these things. And then we've been also doing a tremendous amount of work with the Gates Foundation to try to come up with medicines for the developing world too. That's at an earlier stage, but that's also very important. That's a big part of what our lab works on. So, so that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is just the technologies. The early work we did were model systems, you know, with model drugs. Um, but what would happen over the years is, you know, real drugs would get put in um, for injectability. Then, but over the years, we and others would work on uh, transdermal systems that you put like patches on your skin, uh, systems that you might put in the eye to deliver eye medication, new inhalers to deliver drugs to the lung, uh, other types of uh, things that you deliver to the nose. Uh, we're working actually on ways of delivering things to the ear for people who are deaf or things like that, uh, can't hear well. Um, then, then uh, you know, it goes on and on. And then there's even more advanced things like uh, better vaccine delivery systems. You mentioned the star-shaped system, uh, which I could uh, sh show you even if, if, if it's helpful, but it's, um, uh, but basically we have ways of now, which are in clinical trials, swallowing pills that uh, might last for, you know, rather than a day, which has been the maximum so far, maybe even a week or a month, you know, and, and then we even have, things that we're designing that are pills you could swallow that might be able to deliver insulin and things like that. And it goes on and on. I mean, and, and, and it's hardly just us. I mean, I've had 
probably 4,000 students and postdocs go through the lab, many of whom are professors all over the world. There's tons and tons of companies started by many, many people. And, you know, they, they've been key to all of this. Well, I, th I think we'd love to see the, the star-shaped rug. <laughs> sure. I'll show you a couple of things. The star-shaped one, this is an example. Um, uh, so I can just show you what we do is, um, this was done by Gio de Traverso, Alex Abramson and others. But the idea is that you uh, have the centerpiece, which is made of a degradable polymer. And then you have these spokes and each spoke could contain a drug or a different drug. We've actually put three HIV drugs in you know, each of different spokes. But basically the idea is with this type of chemistry, um, you can just fold this up. And this is an early one but you can fold this up like this. You can put it, and, and when you fold it up, you can put it in a capsule like this. And this just fits in the capsule. So the idea is you swallow the capsule, capsule gets in the stomach, which is acid. And, and because it's acid, it will now dissolve this capsule. As soon as it dissolves this capsule, this will now pop out just the way it was before. But the beauty of this design is that if you look at your anatomy, when you, so here you, first you go to your mouth, then your throat, then your stomach. But before you get from your stomach to the rest of your intestine, there's something called the pylorus. The pylorus is like a hole and it's not even that big. So, you, so this shape will sit on top of it. And the beauty of this particular shape is it's so big, it can't pass through, but it's so open that food and other things can pass through. So it doesn't cause blockage. And then at whatever time you designate it, you can, uh, this centerpiece will dissolve. And when it does, everything will pass out. But what that enables you to do is um, deliver, you can take one pill and it might last for the entire course of treatment, or uh, you know maybe you take a pill once a week or once a month. So we're working on all these things. We're working with the Gates Foundation on a, on a once every two week pill that could you know, wipe out malaria in certain communities. And then we started this company, Lindra, which is, um, you know, with uh, a Gio Traverso and uh, Amy Shulman and, and uh, Andrew Bellinger. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, now we must be in like seven or eight different clinical trials for different diseases. I'm particularly fascinated by this issue of control, right? So, so you know, I, I guess the problem was that these molecules would dissolve on their own. So you encapsulate them, they release in a controlled fashion. Um, it seems to me that uh, I guess the ideal level of control would be if um, uh, you, you have the, the molecule and then, and then it's sort of being navigated through the body. And as soon as it detects a tumor, then it sort of releases the appropriate amount of the inhibitor that's necessary to deal with that tumor and then moves on, right? That's kind of the ideal level of control. So um, how far are we, so what are the current methods of control that are used in these modern drug delivery systems for releasing the correct amounts at the correct locations and how far are we from that ideal case? Yeah, well, I don't think we're at that ideal case, yes, but there, there's sort of two different aspects of control. One is, is um, or maybe even three, one is timing, second is kinetics, and a third is location. So each of those are, are different levels. I would say from the standpoint of timing, there's different ways, you know, when the release would start uh, and, and even developing ways to um, 
to start it, I think we've, you know, you're reasonably far along. In terms of kinetics, you know, getting almost any kinetic pattern you want, I'd say we're pretty far along. In terms of location, that's more complicated. I think if you do what's called local delivery, um, you know, like uh, there are different ways that, that we and others have done it. Like one way is we have these implants that uh, neurosurgeons put in the brain. So you get high concentrations in the brain for the tumor uh, and low concentrations in the rest of the body. Another example, or what, which I've mentioned before, are drug eluting stents, which is probably the major way to treat heart disease today. Um, and, and there you take uh, pretty toxic drugs that are normally used in chemotherapy like Taxol and put it on this stent, which is like a Chinese finger puzzle. And then it locally delivers the drug right to the blood vessels and it, it, it keeps them open. So I think for situations like that, we're also pretty far along. But the idea of what I call a magic bullet, which is kind of closer to what you said, you inject something and all of a sudden it finds its way to exactly where you want it to go and now releases its drug. I think that that we're still, you know, that's still elusive. I mean, there are situations where you, you can take advantage of drugs having leaky vessels. Um, I'm sorry, but the body having leaky blood vessels near a tumor. So it may preferentially accumulate in a tumor. There are examples of uh, certain targeting approaches that you can use for different parts of the body, like the liver, uh, so that you could direct a, a nanoparticle to the liver. Uh, but it, you know, really broadly being able to target, uh, I think still we have a long ways to go. Do you think that some level of wireless technology could help? Maybe this is very out there, but if you were able to, to almost remote control the particle inside the body uh, out, you know, with, with kind of wireless communication, is that, is that something that's, that's even feasible or, or I'm just curious? I think the parts of it are feasible. In fact, one of the things that we've done um, is we've created these like implantable microchips that, that you can do. We actually even published this in Nature and we even brought it into clinical trials, but those are macroscopic. Uh, and, and so you could, um, so those are macroscopic, but you can do exactly what you said, wirelessly. You can uh, cause certain wells to open and release the drug at different times. So that's an example of controlling, of wirelessly dealing with one of the three situations that I mentioned in terms of the timing. You can, uh, for example, have a cover of, uh, on, on, a, one of the, on the wells of the different chips, and you can wirelessly um, open those chips uh, if, if you want. And when you do, drug can come out. Uh, so we actually did a clinical trial for patients with, uh, uh, that were, uh, had osteoporosis and could deliver uh, parathyroid hormone really on demand. But the idea of now having a, a super tiny particle that you could control wirelessly, I mean, I, I certainly don't rule that out. But the question might be, you know, it has to be so tiny uh, and then you might need to image it and you might have to figure out the navigation. And I'm not sure even about the power requirements, you know, went for something so incredibly small, but it's certainly something that we've thought about. But the, the first one that I mentioned, which is a little bit easier problem is still pretty hard. So we're, we're still working on that, 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 that more. Uh, so there's one paper in particular of yours that I saw recently that I thought was a, a very interesting um, application 
for drug delivery research. This was, if I understand it correctly, uh, you and your lab were um, developing a drug delivery system to address chemotherapy for PDA of pancreatic cancer. And this was really cool to me just to see how purely research and drug delivery was used to help chemotherapy and otherwise very painful treatment process. So I'm curious to hear from you for cancer treatment as a whole, how much closer can we get to what one would call a cure for cancer purely through um, drug delivery research? I think you can help cancer through drug delivery research, but a cure is tough. I mean, I don't think, you know, several different systems that we've developed and different people have adapted have, you know, are now widely used for different types of treating cancer, but I don't know that they're cures. Cures, cures are really a hard thing. I, I, so I think drug delivery can help an awful lot of cancer treatments, but I think curing it is gonna be, is, is, is very, very hard. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's gonna be ultimately a combination of better understanding the biology and coupling that with things like that you just mentioned. But even there, it may be that someday, and, and this would even be an improvement of where we are today, that cancer will be more like heart disease, that you'll manage it, you know, that you won't necessarily cure it, but you'll, you'll keep it under control uh, in more and more situations. Uh, we'll have to see. I mean, certainly significant advances in cancer have been made, but I still feel there's a long ways to go in terms of cures. Professor Ling, I think Michael was just trying to figure out when we can uh, expect it so, so he can jump in investing in some companies beforehand. We were, the, 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 the purpose of Policy Punchline is mainly to, to get some insider information about what's on the frontier. You could, you could just invest in all the companies that have come out of our lab. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we will go there uh, in, a, in a bit. But uh, perhaps another big area, aside from uh, drug delivery system, is uh, tissue engineering. That is another field that you have devoted a lot of time on. You and your colleagues developed a 3D synthetic polymer scaffolding, uh, which uh, to an economics major uh, like me already sounds fascinating. Uh, th that could you know, uh, do that to the uh, new skin, bone, uh, blood, organs can grow. And could you help us define tissue engineering a little bit, explain how it works, why it works, and what are some of the specific problems that tissue engineering research could address? Sure, well, so, it must have been, oh, close to 40 years ago, Jay Vacanti, who's a friend of mine, and he was head of the liver transplant program at Children's Hospital, was talking to me and, uh, about how we could help babies that he was treating uh, who were dying of liver failure. Uh, and so we came up with this idea of creating scaffolds, uh, taking maybe the patient's own cells or other cells. And the idea is if you injected those cells at random, nothing happened, but when we put them on the scaffold, again, with the right scaffold, the right media, they were able to be smart enough to reorganize themselves and create a new tissue or organ. So that was like, like I said, the early 80s. But over time, that's developed uh, into many different things. And now you can make uh, artificial skin for burn victims or patients with uh, diabetic skin ulcers that way. And there are many, many other tissues and organs in clinical trials, many number of companies uh, doing that. And there's all kinds of variations that, uh, that people have developed. And then people are using it not now, now not only for you know, making new tissues and organs for patients, but even organs and tissues on a chip, which might improve drug testing and you know, reduce testing in animals and, and people. So to understand the, the principle behind it, um, let's, I mean, let's say we took capillaries, which develop tubular structures. And so 
um, what you're seeing happens is that if you just put capillary cells together, they don't naturally form the tubular structures, that there has to be some sort of scaffolding that exists. And so if that's true, how do you discover that, that scaffolding? Yeah, well, actually, that, what you just said is, is right. You know, if you, in fact, one of the people in Folkman's lab, Dr. Folkman's lab, they actually in vitro took capillary cells and put them on a, like a Petri dish with certain media, and it actually formed a capillary tube. That was part of the basis for Jay and I thinking that maybe we could do this, that some of these things happen naturally. So part of it is using, is just finding the right substrate. You know, there's different materials. Part of it is uh, sometimes intelligently making that substrate because there may be literature information saying that certain amino acids or certain um, structures may improve the ability of certain cells to adhere uh, to a material. Part of it is figuring out the right media. Part of it is figuring out the right um, way to grow the cells. Uh, I'll give you an example of that, like uh, which Laura Nicholson, who is uh, one of our fellows, she wanted to make new blood vessels. And uh, people had tried to do that before. This is small diameter blood vessels. Uh, and, and, and so the idea that, uh, that she had was that you know, not only did we need the right material and, and Jin Ming Gao was another one of our postdocs did a lot of work on that, but we even needed the right reactor conditions. So generally, I don't know if any of you have watched people growing cells, but usually they put them on Petri dishes or other things, they kind of just sit there. Sometimes people have had some motion, but none of that really worked. So Laura's idea, she said, you know, people have tried to make blood vessels, but blood vessels don't just sit there like a, one of these Petri dishes, blood vessels in your body are hooked up to a pulsatile pump like your heart. So she did that. She put, um, she created a, a pulsatile pump uh, that, uh, um, and, and so that went like at 170 uh, beats per minute. And we published in Science uh, Journal that um, you could make new blood vessels that way and it worked really well. And then she actually started a company on that. Uh, I'm on the board of directors. Um, that might be one to look at. Uh, I think they're doing like a SPAC or, or well, they're, they're doing uh, uh, that, you know, they, they, they're in phase three trials or uh, with some pretty good data uh, to make new blood vessels. And, um, you know, and, and they published an article in Lancet a couple of years ago showing some of the data. So, uh, so, so that's, so, so everything matters. It's, it's the cells, it's the tissue, it's the bioreactor conditions, all these kinds of things. Amazing. Um, yeah, I, I did actually do some wet lab research myself in high school, but uh, I, I personally wasn't very good at it. I think one time I uh, turned on sort of the gas instead of the vacuum or something. And, and I think I ruined a whole week's worth of experiments for the whole lab. So I realized that my future wasn't there personally, <laughs> but uh, we, <laughs> It sounds like all you guys are doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, just to kind of dive deeper, um, what are what are what are the current obstacles and limitations in, in doing this tissue engineering? So how does the approach compare in success to, uh, for example, transplanting an organ from uh, a fully formed organ from another human? Yeah. Well, I th I th that's a good question. First, on the organs. So the biggest issue on transplanting the organs is that you know, we just don't have enough, right? There's giant organ shortage on everything you do, liver, everything. And then in many cases, the organs, you know, haven't really worked well when you have transplanted them, say like in a pancreas or something like that. 
So, uh, so I think this is at an earlier stage, obviously, but it's like I say, already led to skin. Um, in the case of blood vessels, like I say, she's already in advanced clinical trials. Other companies that have some spun out of our lab are in pretty advanced clinical trials for spinal cord repair, for hearing loss. Um, you know, I, I hope that there's now a lot of activity for, for creating new pancreases, one of which came from our lab. Um, so I think that there are many more uh, possibilities of how you could use tissue engineering to create these new tissues and organs. You could use the model that I said with real cells and scaffolds. Some places, including what Laura's done is to, uh, and eumocyte is to decellularize them after you've used it to serve its purpose. Other cases, people are, as you may know, are looking at stem cells. Uh, we've done some of that. Other cases, uh, uh, and, and, so, and again, a lot of this was done by Jeff Karp and myself. Uh, Jeff was one of my postdocs, now professor at Harvard. But sometimes you can even isolate specific factors that can cause certain types of stem cells to grow. So you can give those as a drug. Uh, one of the companies we started on that, which is doing quite well, is Frequency Therapeutics, which is uh, uh, trying to treat hearing loss. Uh, and it can, uh, and, and, and these factors through substances can cause the hair cells in the um, ear to grow back and multiply. It's really so, amazing. It's really amazing to hear all those uh, extensions, but do you see this research having any impact beyond uh, the medical community? So for instance, there's a growing demand for uh, lab-grown meat. Uh, sure. Arjun is a vegetarian and he has been trying to indoctrinate Michael and I, for, you know, eating more beyond burgers, whatever, uh, for, for a long time. So, <laughs> Oh, no, you're absolutely, people are doing that, you know. Yeah. In fact, it's funny, a number of, of, of famous people, this must have been 15 years ago, uh, you know, like would ask me if you could ever do that. But over the years, like Shulamit Levenberg, she's one of my uh, former postdocs, she's in Israel. She started a company to use tissue engineering to make meat. And there are quite a few others too that are doing it. I mean, I, I must be five or 10 companies that are trying to make meat that way. And then to your point, there's a company, Modern Meadow. My son actually worked there one summer. They're making leather, uh, you know, from it. And then, like I say, there's all, uh, there's all these organs and tissues on a chip. Uh, quite a few companies doing that. Uh, uh, Tara Biosystems, which is one that I'm a director of and was started uh, out of the University of Toronto and Columbia uh, by uh, Gordon Ovanyak and Melissa Ratzak, who were uh, postdocs and students of mine. And they're, you know, they have like a heart on a chip. So they're doing drug testing, you know, for all these different companies. So there's all kinds of things uh, that, that are getting done. And uh, there's other companies uh, doing, uh, you know, Vivitex is doing a gastrointestinal track on a chip. Uh, Actually, uh, SBS in Texas is also doing heart toxicity uh, on chips. A, a number of companies have started livers on a chip by Linda Griffith and Sangeeta Bacha. There's a lot of different ones. So to popular or to pivot to another popular topic, uh, there is a paper from your lab that incorporated machine learning and deep learning in particular recently for optimal drug injection. There seems to be a trend in some scientific community, computing communities to introduce neural network in their models, particularly when numerical simulation of high dimensional things is important. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what kind of role artificial intelligence may have in your field. Do you think neural networks have a big future in drug delivery research, for example? 
I do. I think actually, I mean, the example you gave is a good example, you know, but one of the things I'm particularly excited about that I've talked with some of the people at MIT about are, uh, are could you apply that to chemical structures uh, and, and, and really learn a, about it that way? So, so let me give an example. We, we've done a lot of work on, uh, with Dan Anderson, who was one of my postdocs now, professor at MIT, on synthesis, uh, creating what I'll call large libraries of materials for different things. So one example uh, is, we're, you know, it's making lipid uh, nanoparticles. And it turns out that the, the type of, uh, which by the way is, you are used in COVID vaccines, they're used in, uh, um, you know, for delivering what is called siRNA uh, and, 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 and that it's already led to treatments. But let's say you make a thousand nanoparticles, maybe 10,000 nanoparticles with different 10,000 different lipids. So it turns out that there at least, well, maybe there's three or four problems that you might want to address. One is how do you make the lipid nanoparticles more and more potent? Say you're trying to deliver siRNA. So we work with Elnylam, a local company that I was on the scientific advisory board of. And between our, our students and the people at their company, which also included some of my former students, we were able to over like a 10 year period, increase the potency of these systems by a factor of 10 to the fourth, you know, like that. So uh, 10,000. So one question is why, what, what structures did we pick that enabled that to happen? So that's one problem. Another problem, which you actually alluded to before is some may target, if you wanted to target to certain cells in the body, you know, again, some of these nanoparticles work better than others. A, a practical example that we could give, which we haven't done, but, but it's in the news all the time, is the Moderna uh, vaccine you can store at, uh, at, at, at room temperature for a month, but the Pfizer one you have to, you know, put under, free, you know, really very, very low temperature conditions. So anyhow, the, the point is, is that you could have libraries of all these things, and we do have libraries of many of them, but then could you use machine learning to say, well, okay, here's, here's uh, certain lipids that work really well. Here's ones that work poorly. Here's one that worked okay. Could you use machine learning to um, figure those problems out? Could you use them to actually predict the next generation and the next generation of, of, of say lipids or polymers or whatever that could help you on potency, that could help you on targeting, that could help you on storage and so forth. And I don't limit it to just that, like we've developed, um, uh, with again with Dan, uh, polymers that are uh, materials that are more and more biocompatible in the in the body. We've published a lot of this in different nature journals, and uh, and it led to another company, Sigalon, which is also doing well. And 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 we've come up with sort of what I'll call super biocompatible materials. You know, we get almost no fibrous encapsulation, which by the way is going to be important for breast implants, lots of uh, lots of other things. So could you again, when you have these libraries of materials? take machine learning and, you know, plug in all, okay, here's structures that work great. Here's ones that don't work at all. You know, and again, learn how to make even the very best chemical structures. So those are some things that I've been real interested in. Uh, we started talking to people who are, you know, very knowledgeable at MIT, like Regina Barzali uh, uh, on, on these kind of machine learning approaches and AI things. So I think there are a lot of exciting things that can be done. You need good, the big issue is you need really good data sets to do these. You know, if you 
had contamination or impurities that might um, make it hard, much harder to, to do it. But I think there's a lot of really good potential in these areas. Uh, by the way, Professor Regina Barzilay will come on our show in March. So it would be great to hear her thoughts on, on these issues as well. But well, she's done. She's doing great work. That's good. Yeah. Uh, Professor Langer, I noticed that as we spend the past 40 minutes or so going over your research, uh, you mentioned a lot of your colleagues, postdocs in your lab and your uh, former students. So I, I think perhaps it would be nice for us to learn a little bit more about your lab because the Langer lab is uh, MIT is the largest biomedical engineering lab in the world, uh, maintaining over $10 million in annual grants and over 100 researchers. And so many wonderful companies have come out of this hub of, of research and uh, business school professors have always said that if there were more Langer-like labs that focused on high-impact research, the United States would realize its enormous potential for creating wealth and, and doing good for society. So perhaps we can talk a little bit more about your, your lab? Sure, of course. Um, do you, well, basically our lab, it's, it's very, I mean, it's, I, I just has a couple features that I, I could highlight. I mean, one is it's very interdisciplinary. In other words, like I'm, my background is chemical engineering, but we have people in the lab probably with about 10 different disciplines from you know, graduate students and postdocs and, and MDs uh, in different areas. So, um, and, 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 it, and it's been like that for a while. So one thing that maybe distinguishes is, is its interdisciplinarity. We also have probably the largest undergraduate uh, lab of any place at MIT too. Uh, you know, we have lots of had lots of great undergraduates working in the lab uh, doing what are called Europe's. That's a MIT kind of term, undergraduate research opportunity program. But but I think it's the interdisciplinarity and 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 also it's the idea of doing basic curiosity-driven research in science and engineering, but not just leaving it at that. In other words, do make those discoveries, some of which we've talked about, but it's also wanting to see those discoveries ultimately get used by patients and people. And, you know, and, and I guess I found that if you, in many cases, if you're not your own champion, you know, nobody else will be. So, you know, so that's where we've started companies and we've pushed things along to the point where, you know, I, I like to think that, that people feel, you know, it's, it's gonna get, it's, whether it's us or somebody else, it will make an impact in people's lives. You were previously joking that we should just invest in uh, all the companies that came out of the Langer Lab, which uh, to me is a really unique feature because uh, you've previously spoken about the three P's of launching a company from university research, which stands for platform patent and paper. Uh, so how do those words define your, your approach? Uh, and would love to hear a little bit more about that front. Yeah, well, what we do in the lab, again, my goal in the lab is, is a couple fold, just to do really good research and to train the very, very best people. But I also mentioned that it's been important to me and, and I think many of the students to see if they do this work and it's working somewhat well, that it, it gets used. So I guess the first thing is, in my experience, if you make a discovery or you make an invention, it's probably gonna have more impact if it can be applied to many things, right? Like when I showed you that star system before, you could apply that to virtually any drug. Uh, and, and if you took messenger RNA, you could apply that to many, many different problems, many different problems. So that's, that's a platform. And, and I think a platform can have 
a great impact. In fact, if the technology is good, even if one of the things that you try to make happen doesn't work well, or several of them don't work well, well, others may work well. And so, but it's just the potential to have an impact uh, with drug delivery or tissue engineering or um, you know nanoparticles. I think it's just greater if you have a much, much greater, if you have a platform, the chance of making an impact is much higher. We always publish everything we do. I mean, it's, um, that's important to me for the students. It's part of MIT policy. In fact, I would say that over the last five years, we've probably published over on the average of about 1.3, 1.4 papers a month in science and nature journals. So we not only try to publish, we try to publish in, in high impact, difficult to publish places, which I found has been very helpful to getting the students get good jobs. And, uh, you know, and so that's the, you know, because universities like to see that. And, and, and as you pointed out, we started companies and that gets to the third P, which is the patents that unfortunately in medicine, everything you do in medicine costs enormous amount of money. You know, Tufts, I think has an estimate that it costs close to $3 billion to make a new drug with all the testing that has to be done. And investors will not put in money and the, unless they feel that there's some protection and that's where the patents come in. So we try to do that as well. So th those, so th so that th those three things always, always come up. One thing that you mentioned was uh, how your lab is extremely interdisciplinary and that's something that sets your lab apart. Um, it seems like that was a struggle earlier and that you had difficulty personally being a chemical engineer and doing biomedical research. And um, uh, at least from my perception at Princeton, it seems that a lot of university faculty and administrators now strive to have more interdisciplinary faculty projects and researchers. Um, do you think that's unique to a few schools or do you think in general academia has become perhaps more open to interdisciplinary research that, that draws in multiple fields to solve important problems? Yeah, I think it's been an evolving thing. You know, so when I went to Children's Hospital uh, in 1974. I was the only engineer in the entire hospital. It certainly wasn't common. And in fact, if you looked at universities then, and probably even now, but I think it's a little different. I'm not sure exactly what I visited Princeton last, but it's at most schools, you know, there's probably, I'll, I'll make this up, but let's say there's a building for chemical engineering. There's a building for economics. There's a building for English, you know, but there's not a building for, you know, that is that, interdisciplinary. Uh, the, the, in other words, the buildings are largely discip single discipline. Uh, so I think that it has changed, I think, uh, but I still think it's not that common. Uh, and, I, and I don't think it's that simple. I mean, I personally love interdisciplinary work, but I don't know that there's just one right way to do it. Um, you know, I, I, it's just that that's what we do. Uh, but I feel, and, and I think being interdisciplinary for me, being a chemical engineering, wanting to see the things we do, you know, make an impact the way I feel they've done and I hope continue to do, you know, I think that that's been important because the problems we're trying to address and the discoveries we're trying to make, and, you know, they, they're, they're not, they don't just come from one thing. So, so I do feel it's, 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 it's certainly changed from 1974, but I still think the rule is more single disciplinary than multidisciplinary. But Phil Sharp and myself and Susan Hockfield, who was president of MIT, and Tyler Jacks, you know, we've all talked about this concept of what we'll call convergence, 
And I do feel there's more and more of that. Uh, and I think there's been more and more interest in that. Uh, I know Phil and I wrote an article in Science, must have been in 2011 on, on that very issue. And I feel, um, you know, more places are, are thinking about doing that. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. But I'd like to say, I don't know that there's just one right way. So on the topic of, of there being uh, no one right way, I, I'm interested in hearing more about the fact that um, this dichotomy between academia and the private sector. Um, so, you know, in particular, you when we were talking about your research, you mentioned that a lot of your research has been spun off into companies um, that you're um, leading or, or play important roles in. Um, and so you're renowned actually for spinning your research into private sector enterprises. And so I'm curious to hear what do you think are the upsides and downsides of academia in the private sector and why is it important that uh, scientists engage in both? Well, again, I, I think it's most important that scientists do what they love and that they feel is good uh, for them and for their students. Again, I don't know that there's just one right, right way, but the way I personally look at it is I love doing the work in my MIT lab. I love working with the students. You know, that's always been my first priority and, and still is. But myself and actually a lot of the students who've worked on this, you know, you, you do work on something for five or 10 years, you wanna see it make, have the biggest impact on the world. And so you can only go so far in a university, right? You could publish the paper, but you can't do clinical trials or it's not very easy to do clinical trials, I should say. It's very hard to do manufacturing and so forth. So, um, you know, so the companies, I think, have done a great job at doing those kinds of things and others to take an idea that might be a discovery or invention and now bring it to the world. So I personally have felt it's, it's a good thing. And a lot of my students have, um, you know, really wanted to do that in postdoc. So uh, I, I feel like both are important. But by the way, Professor Lang, I just want to say on the topic of interdisciplinary topic, I've, I've been talking to the econ department about teaching classes in the art museum for a long time. They just wouldn't do it. They said right. it's too distracting. So No, no, <laughs> that, that's a good example. There's a huge resistance to, and, and there always has been a huge resistance to doing what you just said and, 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 and what I did. In fact, as it, we didn't really get into it, but I, you know, when I was applying for faculty positions in 19... Uh, 77, no chemical engineering department in the world would hire me because they felt the ideas I had, uh, you know, didn't make any sense because they were more in the bio area. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about this dichotomy between private sector and academia, because a lot of times the, the world investors is often seen as taboo in an academic circle. So in, even in something like economics, if you talk about going to finance, the, the practitioners are often seen as very distant from the academic people, whereas you guys, you really try to work hard to making your research and your students' research accessible to the public and, and helping fund uh, biotech companies over the years. And this intersection between engineering and finance is really expanding over the past few years as more scientists begin to enter this investing space. So uh, do you believe that the two disciplines will eventually continue to become more closely intertwined in, in the future? Um, are there any ethical considerations or concerns you, you have on your mind? Um, yeah, so, well, well, so I don't know that we invest. I think we invent and then what the, the sort of the model, at least that we've used, and I think that lots of people now use, is that, you know, we make a discovery or an invention, 
and and then we feel like well maybe this could be a company and and then there are what are called venture capitalists right and there's a number of venture capital firms um and and in fact a lot of number of my students work in venture capital firms too now but so the venture capital firm wants to make an investment in our invention and start a company on and and so that and, and so that that's how it gets started and some of the early employees of the company are the students who made those discovery and inventions in our lab and and then it grows from there i so i think that that but investors play a huge role because you know they that if without them we wouldn't have the company especially in the medical area that takes so much money and um so i think that 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 they play a huge role and they and, and usually they're on the boards of directors uh, sometimes some of the scientists are too i've been on a number of boards of directors but i but i do feel like it's kind of almost a marriage in a way right the, the investors are putting in the money they're, they're sometimes helping on the management um you know and they have to keep raising or putting in more money and providing guidance and then the scientists and engineers and the clinicians you know they're moving the technology forward and forward uh, and in fact, my feeling when I look at any of the companies, startup or otherwise, usually you'll have some business people like the CEO, you'll have some medical people like the chief medical officer, you'll have some finance people like the chief financial officer, and, uh, and maybe some business people who do deals of the small company with the larger companies. And then you'll have lots and lots of scientists who are, are really making the discoveries, doing the work. You might have a group of manufacturing people as well, depending on the size of the company. So it's really a marriage of, of many different skills. So at what point is, are you able to say that research is ready to be spun off into a company? Um, yeah. yeah. Great question. And what I've tried to say, I'll, I'll give you two answers to that. One is what I've tried to do is, is um, say, well, okay, if we've met the following criteria, we've uh, got a platform technology, We've got a paper in a good journal. We've got a patent, you know, that's a, a very good patent, ideally a, what I'll call a blocking patent, but at least it gives you freedom to operate. Again, if it's in the medical area that we've got in vivo data, not necessarily humans, but in vivo data. And finally, that there's some people in the lab that really wanna do it, you know, that they feel committed to really wanting to start this company and, and, and work there. And one of the main reasons I've done it a lot of times is that that's what my students have wanted to do. That's their dream. And so that, that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is I think that what goes on in the MIT lab is largely research, you know, real research. And when you start the company, I think then you're at least doing some significant development. In other words, when you hear the phrase R&D, that's research and development. And so I think that the, it's not to say that companies don't do research, they do, but they're gonna be doing development because ultimately they have to turn out products. So, so both those ways. You've, you've previously talked about the importance of funding and fueling innovation. And is it a, how much of money is the issue in creating these breakthroughs for certain diseases? Does spending more money directly correlate to a higher likelihood of success? Uh, I suppose that it's conceivable that if a country pours a trillion dollars into a Manhattan Project scale endeavor, like curing cancer breakthroughs, will could they inevitably happen? Or is biomedical research a field that money ultimately plays 
a relatively secondary role? Well, I think it plays a very important role. I think the fact that, um, you know, even like say, for example, in medical research, the NIH budget over the years has, uh, you know, increased a lot. And I think that that's what the NIH has funded has really led to, you know, I think many of the major discoveries that uh, have come about. I think without having that funding and without having that freedom, I don't think we'd be where we are today in terms of any of the biotech companies. Uh, so I think the funding is, is, has, has been critical and I think it will continue to be critical. That doesn't mean you wanna just dump money out. I think you wanna use the money judiciously. But I think that even though the NIH is hardly perfect, I think they've done uh, overall very good job over the years of, of, uh, of, of, of doing funding. And I think other funding always helps. I think what the Gates Foundation has been doing is, has, which is more directed, but I think it's been, you know, also quite successful. Uh, and I think sometimes companies do funding of academic work. And I think, again, depending on the example, that's been successful. I feel having been the beneficiary of all three of those, that, 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 that having had that funding has made a huge difference. And it's not only made a huge difference on the research we do, um, but it's also made a huge difference in the training, you know, that the students who have worked in the lab have gotten great jobs and that's, you know, whether it be in academia or in industry. And so I feel all over the world. So I feel, I feel the money is, is really important. I think when, a, you know, I, I, I think if a country doesn't put money into basic research, I think that it's going to be very hard for them to to do the kinds of things that have happened in the United States. I'd love to hear more about the, the work with the Gates Foundation. Uh, and, and I think in particular, what are the challenges that are unique to delivering medicine in, in I guess, quote unquote, developing countries? And, and, um, and, and what are the kind of things that, that you face maybe in, in those kinds of problems that you might not face um, in, in, in other drugs that you develop? Yeah, well, I mean, the number, well, one of the big problems is what's called compliance, you know, in other words, people don't come back for a second injection, they may not take a second pill, you know, the, but I, they're, they're different things, like somebody might not take a second pill, because that just, that they're just not used to doing that. In the case of vaccines, they may not come back for a second injection, just because of the kind of medical care they have in the first place. Uh, there's also nutritional problems it, you know, there, there's huge uh, vitamin and mineral deficiencies in the developing world that, you know, are, are certainly less common, uh, you know, here. So those are some of the things that, that uh, have come up. And, and those are all things that we've been working on different solutions for. Um, and the star even was an example of that, because there you could take possibly a pill that could last a week or a month, maybe even a year, and for the entire course of treatment. So, uh, but there are many other examples too. We've been working on vaccines that where you could just give a, a single injection um, rather than have to come back for multiple boosts. Uh, we've been working on new nutritional ways of giving, uh, you know, fortifying different things like for things like vitamin A and iron and so forth. So there's a lot of, um, different uh, problems that come up. Uh, and there's different diseases, of course, that people get in the developing world that they don't like TB and malaria and, 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 and other diseases. Uh, 
And then sometimes there's, there's other problems just because they don't have good medical care, like uh, babies have uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, you know, if they were, and so we're, we're trying to make simple inhalation therapies for them because they don't have the same hospital facilities that, that we have in the US. Uh, Professor Langer, I think maybe this is a good time for us to be a little bit more forward-looking because it seems that we are in the midst of a scientific revolution. We've never seen as sort of a robust, as robust of biotech innovations and capital activities uh, as these days. I think 2019 was a record year. 2020 was also a big record year. COVID um, obviously made a lot of people realize the importance uh, of healthcare. And a lot of people on Wall Street have been saying that biotech would continue to outperform and would be the next big thing, especially the convergence of DNA sequencing, AI, gene therapy, especially uh, CRISPR gene editing technology that would allow us to cure so many more diseases and also uh, surfacing mutations in, in gen genomic profiles so that we can detect and, pr and prevent a lot of the diseases in the long run. So uh, what biotech trends do you foresee coming? What are some of the things uh, on your mind these days? Well, I think, the, the, I think there's all kinds of biotech trends happening and coming you know, I'll sort of make two types of comments. One, I mean, what you can already see are, are big advances in areas like proteomics and, um, you know, other omics like lipid, lipidomics, glycomics. Uh, you know, these are different types of molecules. I also think you see big advances in material science and nanotechnology as they can be used in medicine. As you pointed out, you know, there's, uh, whether it's CRISPR or gene editing or messenger RNA or, um, you know, but different genetic therapies, I think are, 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 are very important. I, I do feel AI could be very important as you've mentioned and digital medicine also, there's been a lot of interesting work on. Um, I, and and uh, I think cellular therapies are gonna be very, very important, whether they're for uh, ways of attacking cancer or um, regenerative medicine, which we've mentioned before, like tissue engineering. So I think there's all kinds of things like that and, and others that I, I'm sure I didn't mention things like drug delivery and so forth, but lots of those. But I sometimes think that some of the things that'll be the most important don't have a name yet because they really haven't happened. Like if you ask somebody 10 years ago what CRISPR was, nobody would know. Now everybody knows, you know, and, and I think that that's a good thing, you know, that, that people are gonna keep discovering things by doing basic research and some of those basic research things will, will change the world. So to talk more about the vaccine now, you were, of course, one of the founders of Moderna, the company behind one of the first approved coronavirus vaccines. Uh, a business insider headline claimed that Moderna had designed the vaccine just two days. Uh, for context, for the viewers, the vaccine development process typically takes at least a full year. Um, in this case, both uh, Moderna and Pfizer sped up the process by relying on mRNA vaccines, which essentially deliver instructions to the body on what type of antibiotics it should make. Could you begin maybe by breaking down the science behind the COVID vaccine and Moderna's approach to the science? Yeah, so it's, it's actually an an antibodies rather than antibiotics, but the idea is that, so, the, so basically there's a central dogma, right? The DNA makes RNA, makes protein. So classically, what people did for vaccines were more like on the protein part, right? And, and so whether they, they would, they'd either use inactivated viruses or things like that, or they'd grow up eggs that could make a protein or 
and so forth. So what Moderna did is start with the messenger RNA. Um, the, when you do the virus work or the, you know, or the eggs or whatever, it may take a very, very long time to grow up enough to make the vaccine. The beauty of messenger RNA is you could make the messenger RNA and you can do it quickly, but then you give it to the body, you inject it, and the body is actually your factory. The body, uh, since like I said, DNA makes RNA makes protein, well, you give the RNA and it's gonna make the protein. So that actually is, is a paradigm shift in the sense that now you could make the vaccine extremely quickly and start testing it in people you know, in very short time, maybe a month. That's what Moderna has been able to do. That's been one of the key pillars of the technology. But there are others too, and some of it gets to what we talked about before, which is the delivery. Because if you just gave messenger RNA to a patient, it would get destroyed immediately. So that's where the delivery again comes in. So what's done is it's encapsulated in nanoparticles, in this case, lipids, but it could be others. People are looking at others, but basically it's encapsulated in nanoparticles. You give, you shoot the nanoparticle with the messenger RNA into the patient. It protects it uh, so it doesn't get destroyed immediately. And, and uh, sometimes you have to decorate the nanoparticles with different molecules like polyethylene glycol. So it, it, it will last longer, but the point is you inject it and um, it goes like into the muscle or wherever. And then now you have the RNA comes out and it, it starts making, the body starts making the protein and then the body will start making antibodies to that protein. And if it, ma it makes enough, then you'll be fully immunized. Usually you get two shots because the first one starts the antibody production, but you start having these, uh, get some memory. And so when you give the second shot, you make even more antibodies uh, and, and, and hopefully have high antibody titers. Sometimes you may need a booster shot too, because over time it may wane. So you may need a booster shot uh, depending on the situation. So what was the reason for the record speed? Uh, was, was it sort of an investment into, the, into a development of a platform that could lead to very rapid testing of vaccine candidates? Like, well, how come it was so fast? It seems it's, especially compared to previous vaccine candidates. Yeah, well, first messenger RNA is gonna be much faster than previous vaccine, vaccine candidates just because of the nature that I mentioned that you're using the body as a factory and that you could design uh, from, you know, literally if you know the sequence, you can design the mRNA right away. And, uh, and, and, and then you just make it, put it in the nanoparticles and, and, and you're ready to test it. So that was one reason. The other reason really was, uh, I think, Operation Warp Speed, you know, that the government put in a lot of money and accelerated testing. In other words, they, they were able to do, you know, normally you do phase one, uh, what is called phase one, which is looking at safety, phase two, looking at uh, efficacy. These are both on small numbers of patients. And then phase three, a large number of patients. Here, you know, the, they move those at much faster speeds than normal. So because of both the funding and the way the regulatory agencies analyze things, um, they were able to move much, much quicker because you know, it was an emergency situation. So that's why BioNTech who work with Pfizer and Moderna, you know, which, which I, I've been on the, I'm on the board of and co-founded, you know, we're able to get approval you know, in well less than a year. Uh, but, but it's a combination of both the science 
and I think this incredible emergency, and 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 then, you know, both the FDA and the government, uh, you know, putting in this this funding. Professor Lang, I I just want to quickly clarify this with you. It seems that this is a whole new endeavor because Moderna previously had zero approved product in mRNA technology, but but very soon. There should be a few dozens of drugs and treatments in the pipeline, if I if I recall correctly. Well, yes and no. So Moderna, even when the COVID virus, even when we started that work, that was actually vaccine number nine that went into the clinic. There's many others that uh, that Moderna has worked on that are in clinical trials. So and and so they've probably, you know, so the tests that we did on those clinical trials, they weren't approved. Like I say, you have to go through phase one, phase two, phase three. So, but there were, I think eight others at that time that were either in phase one or phase two. So it wasn't like there was no science or no human clinical trials, but in a way the COVID vaccine leapfrogged over all those others, just because of the speed at, at that I mentioned because of the funding that the government put into it and, and the movement that the FDA did. Whereas the others went through more, what I'll call standard, even though I think it's faster than what had ever been done before, it's still, you know, not as fast as the COVID vaccine because of, of, of how, you know, everybody, because of all that in, increased funding and, and because of the, the trials, the FDA. Right, so, so it seems like you have these three pillars. You have academia, you have the private sector, you have the, you have the government, and, and all, all three seem to sort of converge perfectly and work really well together to, to solve this immediate crisis. Um, do you think that the way that these three different pillars have worked together to solve the COVID crisis, um, it acts as, as kind of a model for biotech innovation in the future. And do you think we'll see this kind of speed become more normalized if, if and this kind of cooperation become more normalized? Well, that's a really interesting question. Let me, let me sort of give you a couple of thoughts on that first. I think what happened with the COVID vaccine is remarkable. And I agree with you in terms of the partnership, but certainly in every other aspect of the COVID crisis, I would say it's been a disaster. I mean, you know, you look at the, and it's tragic really, right? You look at the diagnostics, you look at the mask issue. I mean, I would love it if, if you know, at, at many, many levels, I mean, so I, I I mean, I don't want to give my, or myself or anybody else any credit about Moderna, but really that's the exception, right? Basically, when we started Moderna, all these people in finance actually would, and, and the newspapers, everybody said Moderna is going to do terrible. If you're doing vaccines, there's just a terrible business. So, uh, you know, so that happened repeatedly. There were these reporters at STAT and other places that would just keep saying Moderna, even when the valuation was couple billion dollars, now it's 70 billion, but they'd say they're never gonna go beyond that. They were just huge amount of criticism. Also, now to go to mass and diagnostics, as far as I can see, there have been no incentives, no good companies. So you have one, maybe two doing vaccines. Well, in diagnostics, you know, we've had a total disaster as far as I can see, still is, you know, if, if you go to anybody, I don't know if any of you have ever gotten tested. I think my, my son, uh, you know, his, his, his girlfriend at the time um, went to get a test. I think she got it back five months later. 
Uh, I mean, I can think of example after example of, of how bad the tests have been and they don't work. There's lots of false positives, lots of false negatives. I mean, it's just been terrible. And masks, I think, are also really important beyond, first of all, I mean, you had the CDC and the World Health Organization for months recommending to not use masks, um, you know, because they, 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 they'd say, well, they'd give people a false sense of confidence or other issues. Um, anyhow, and, and, and there have been, as far as I can see, there's, you know, very tiny mask companies, but not really substantial ones. And it would be wonderful, I think, if the government or companies or investors felt like, boy, it'd be great to have a great diagnostic company or great to have a good mask company. But the fact is, again, if people created those companies, well, first of all, I think they'd have a hard time funding it. People also in the venture community don't generally don't like diagnostics. And a lot of times they don't like medical devices or masks. So I, I think it's really, really been difficult. And so I, so I, so that, so that, so you probably have to pick your, you know, you have to probably pick the horses you ride on. So I feel that the vaccine thing, that, that I do think has been remarkably successful from the standpoint of getting the vaccine out fast. Now, even after that, I don't think the governments have done a very good job of getting it to the public. I mean, I think there, that was a, sort of a mess. I still think from what I see, it could be done a lot better. So I, 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 I think that, that, that to me, the COVID vaccine operation warp speed is, you know, sort of, in my opinion, a stunning technical success, but it sort of stands alone. Professor Langer, would you, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the mRNA technology? Because I remember uh, talking to a Princeton professor, uh, Ning Yan, who is a very famous structural biologist, and, and I was talking to her, and even she was like, I really have no idea what, what the long-term effects or, or what this technology really is. And one of the kind of anti-vaccine narrative that is out there in the public these days is that this thing has been you know invented in such a long uh, such a short time span so who knows what's going to happen in 10 years out or whatever years out and and that kind of uh, I, I guess eroded out of the public trust in, in the in the technology so uh, would you mind telling us a little bit how much we do know about this technology and, well, and, and I think you know a lot I mean first of all like I say this wasn't the first vaccine that Moderna put in the clinic, they've probably, we've probably done over a thousand patients on other vaccines, some who've had the messenger RNA for many years. So you have that database, number one. Second thing that you know, number two, is just the science. So when you, and Melissa Moore, who's at Moderna, I mean, she's one of the top people in the world in this, and this is what she told the FDA, which is exactly right, is that if you give messenger RNA, it's, it doesn't last long. I mean, it's not DNA. It can't get integrated into the genome or anything. It's basically does what it does. It gets destroyed. It's going to be gone probably a week later. Uh, so to me, um, same thing with the nanoparticles. They're all going to be gone, um, you know, very, very soon. So I think whether you look at it from a scientific standpoint or from the clinical data standpoint, it would be pretty surprising I mean, I can't think of a reason. And like I say, a lot smarter people than I on the RNA area, like Melissa and, and also the people at the FDA, you know, have looked at this, Tony Fauci, you know, uh, you know that I think there's every reason to think it, it should be safe. And I mean, and at least as safe as anything that people have ever done before. Uh, you know, now there will be more and more data coming over time, but I, 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 I there have 
when you really look at, just compare this to the flu vaccine, I mean, there have been, you know, no more bad reactions to this than to the flu vaccine. And now many, many millions of people have been vaccinated. You know, in terms of the long term, like I say, I, I just can't, I, I, I'm not trying to say that you couldn't have some person have bad effect, but the question is, would it be from this? In other words, if you look out of 20 million people, you'll sure, if you take any 20 million people, you'll find some, some that might have a reaction to this or that. But, you know, but, but maybe it's not because of this or that, right? Maybe they breathe something in bad or something else happened. So I think statistically, um, you want, there hasn't been anything that I've seen that's shown that any of these messenger RNA vaccines have caused any harm. Um, so, and, and like I say, scientifically, I wouldn't expect it to. Uh, so I think about time to start wrapping it up at this point, uh, I wanted to bring it back to a question that maybe a lot of the viewers of this podcast can relate to. So you have often said that research is about asking the right questions rather than knowing the right answer. So what does this mean to ask the right questions and how do you teach students to do this? And if a student comes to you today with a task that you think is impossible or infeasible, what do you would generally advise them to do? So, um, so basically, if, they, if I think it's impossible, well, first, I don't ever tell any, you know, the question is, is it really impossible? And the way I think about it is, um, you know, first, is it a good idea? And secondly, what advice could, should I give them? And I guess what I try to say is that, you know, have you thought this through? You know, I think this is, I, I don't want to be over negative. I'd want to say, well, there's, you know, some really good aspects. Have you thought about how long this might take? Do you have a plan about how you get there? What will you do if this happens? You know, things like that. You know, you ask different questions. Uh, Professor Lang, one question I'm pretty curious about is, uh, do you ever think about philosophical questions uh, as you venture through science? Because uh, Alan Turing was famous for publishing philosophy journals and debating with Wittgenstein. And it seems that there's a lot of overlap between the scientifically and metaphysically unanswerable questions. And I was just wondering, uh, what kind of things do you think about every day as you uh, go on a treadmill or take a shower or, or have some uh, kind of other free time to, to do other readings? Well, I mean, it varies all over the place. You know, I mean, I try to, you know, I, I don't necessarily try when I'm, you know, running or when I'm showering, but, you know, sometimes thoughts creep in and then they creep in for different reasons because, you know, it could be something I've read, um, it could be just putting two different things together, you know, from, you know, talking to somebody to watching a TV show to listening to music, you know, it just, I, the one thing that I've had positive going for me is I've learned, you know, by being an undergraduate and PhD in chemical engineering, I learned something about that. And then being a postdoc in a surgery lab in a hospital, I learned something about that. So a lot of what I've ended up doing is sort of taking those two and then sometimes something else triggers some idea you know, uh, like the microchip for drug delivery or new materials that could change shape, uh, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, but it's, it's, it's maybe putting different things together in, in, in different ways. Um, do, you, do you encourage, so, so if students come to you with, with I think maybe what is a, a common dilemma, which is going into academia or going into industry, um, how do you advise students? I think personally, um, I, you know, I, I definitely am I'm kind of still conflicted on, on, on that question and, and whether, I would see myself more in academia or industry. And so, so I'm curious how you, 
how you personally thought about it and how you advise students when they presumably come to you and, and, and ask about it? Well, I think that, I think both are great. You know, I think it's, it's really following your heart. I think that if you're in academia, you have enormous freedom. Um, you're your own boss. I think that's great. But you're going to have to probably spend a lot of time raising money. And uh, if you go into companies, I think that's also terrific, uh, you know, that you can really get a lot of fulfillment out of creating products that can hopefully change people's lives. You won't have to worry about uh, the funding, but, you know, the company, you know, you're going to have bosses in a different way, you know, that have control over you that you, that, that not to say that academics is, is, is perfect, but, um, you know, but I think you have a lot more, 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 uh, you know, academics has more freedom, I think, in certain ways. And then just to follow up more philosophically, it seems like the question that has guided you deeply throughout your life is, is what can I do that'll have an impact on, on people and make a difference in the world? Um, do you think that that's a question that's important? Like if a, if, if a student were to ask you, what is the question that should guide my life? Um, is that a question that you think is, that you would, would you respond by giving them this question? Or do you think that people think about it um, you know, some people might think of, I want to really discover, and some people might say, I really want to help people. Is that a dichotomy that exists? Or do you think that everybody should kind of think about how they want to make an impact on the world and how they want to make people's lives better? Like, is that an important guiding question for everybody to think about? I, I, it's, I, it's, a, it's an important question that I think about. And, and I think sometimes it gives people a lot of fulfillment to do that. So I always think about impact. But really, happiness is the most important thing. Different people you know, happiness and health, I think, are the most important things and, and being a good human being, you know, so I, I don't know that there's just one way to look at it. Professor Langer, I, I know we're almost at 1pm. So just to wrap up here, uh, two quick questions. One is, are you optimistic or pessimistic uh, about where we're headed as a society? Because we have seen tremendous achievements in science over the past year, but also polarization, a lot of this distrust in, in science. Um, the, the second question is because the name of our show is Policy Punch Sign what would your punchline be for, for this interview? We, we've talked so much uh, about your career and research, so. Well, I'm, again, I'm concerned about what's been happening uh, as you, you alluded to, but I, I, I'm always hopeful that the good of people will win out over the bad. And so I'm hopeful that things will, will, will get better and that people become more aware because of what we've seen, but we certainly have work to do. And in terms of, to me, I always think, well, what would my punchline be? You know, when I give like a commencement address or something, I always, you know, I'm a dreamer. So I tell people, you know, to dream big dreams that can change the world. Recognize that if you do that, you'll probably get people, a lot of people telling you that you're wrong or it won't work. And so I tell them not to give up. Professor Langer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been such a wonderful interview. I'm sure Arjun and Michael and, and I, we've all just learned so much. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, you guys did a great job. I wish you the best and thank you. Terrific yeah, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, th this concludes this uh, episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on policypunchline.com and YouTube. You may uh, watch this uh, on our YouTube channel and listen in on Spotify, SoundCloud, any of your uh, preferred uh, podcasting platform. Uh, this is uh, part of our continued coverage of aspiring intellectuals where we have some of the more fundamental scientific questions in humanities and philosophy and science. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for listening today.
You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.